Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Ask a Painter Live with Nick Slavic. We have little man Sig here today. Uh, he was just chilling in my office and he just came over and wanted to, wanted to snuggle a little bit. So evidently Sig's going to be in this Ask a Painter Live with me today. Um, we had such a good time last night. It's unseasonably warm here. And uh, we had a great bonfire last night overlooking the marsh and the wetlands back here. And uh, yeah, the beautiful purple and orange sunset and this little man sat just like he did now in front of the fire last night and uh, brought him inside and he was scratching at the door to come back out with me. So this little guy smells like a bonfire today, but man, we like those days out here on the Slavic farm. So, all right, guys, um, very special show today. Um, This is the origin story of all of this. Um, Back to when I was a kid, through high school, through everything else, um, how I started this business, what my headspace is in now, and uh, maybe something about the future as well too. So uh, this has been a very introspective uh, week for me, thinking about 15 years of business. And um, it's kind of interesting, like this this will kind of tell you where my headspace and self-esteem is at, which is like, I didn't even think to post happy anniversary to the business. Um, to me, the biggest thing that I struggle with is you're supposed to be a business for 15 years and you're supposed to make money and you're supposed to be happy. So when you achieve those things, what's there to celebrate? That was the mission. That's what you've worked so hard to do. So why should we be celebrating an expected outcome? I've soon come to realize uh, over the last couple of years that I need to celebrate wins a lot more. And um, not only for myself, uh, for my family, and then for all the people around me too. You know, you can um, draw a straight through line into apprenticeship uh, for this too, which is when you hire a decent human being, somebody who's never been in the trades before, and you teach them in a very high way, you hold them accountable, you train, support, mentor them, uh, lead them, and they do good things. Um, To me, that's not a win. That's like expected outcome. That's what we're all here to do. I've soon come to realize that you should be celebrating that win and everybody needs wins, real wins. Everybody needs to celebrate wins. And so this show and this week, and then this next coming 15th anniversary year is sort of a personal challenge to myself to celebrate some wins and, um, stop apologizing for what we've done here. Um, interesting, interesting journey for you guys. I, I tell parts of this, during my master's classes when I travel the United States. Um, Snippets, because we only have a limited amount of time. And this past four-day weekend, uh, this big Thanksgiving Day weekend, as far as I can tell, this is the anniversary of the business. Um, This is back in the paper records day, so give or take a day or two, we hit it. Um, I really struggled with whether to do the typical Nick Slavic treatment of one of these things where I create a 621-page PowerPoint presentation, and I give you all the historical documents and the historical pictures, and we turn it basically into a college thesis. And we're just not going to do that. It's been so fun looking through my archive. I, I have a 
physical tote full of physical things from the first year of my business, my estimating book, the first shirt I ever wore for the business, my original hat, things like that. And you know what? I really wanted to make this into like a huge presentation with all the artifacts and the things. But you know what? This one's just going to be audio. I'm just going to take you down an audio meandering of when I was born to where we are now. And this is probably going to be best as a podcast because uh, all you're going to be doing is staring at me and Sig, which I just realized we matched today. <laughs> but special place. I'm in my special white oak rocking chair in the special corner of my office. I don't show very often. This is the contemplation place for me. Uh, I usually start my days off here with a cup of coffee in the dark, thinking about things. And uh, I've been thinking about things a lot lately and uh, we have a lot to celebrate. So this show is a treatise is a history of this company. Um, some of this may be greatly interesting. It'll certainly add some flavor to who I am, what I do, how I do it, why I do it. Um, but for nothing else, this will be for my family and my kids and uh, uh, employees of the company and uh, future employees of the company and uh, whoever takes over this company from me uh, at a given time is, uh, is gonna walk into something with a lot of flavor and a lot of depth and a lot of history. And uh, they should be part of this history. All my people right now are a part of this history. So, all right, here we go. A uh, little bit of house cleaning first. Uh, how, uh, we'll go through um, a few upcoming dates, a few upcoming things here. Uh, we'll keep it brief because this might be a long one today. Um, uh, two more master's classes in my Midwest master's class tour. Uh, we have Michigan and Ohio coming up. Uh, we've done Minnesota, we've done Nebraska, and now we have uh, Ohio and then Michigan, which is going to be awesome. Those are my peeps over there. We're going to be giving master's classes. That'll round up my year, and then I'll take some time off from traveling and uh, work on the business for a while. Regroup, and we're going to hit the ground running. There's already people talking about a schedule of events for next year. Um, I, I will be introducing the retreats, uh, the, the winter and summer retreats uh, for 2023 as well, coming up shortly here. So if you wanna be involved in one of those, we'll have one of those for you. Uh, and also, Jason Paris uh, and my, our main initiative uh, with the supporting and the backing of all of uh, the PCA and its members in our industry have created a, um, a, uh, a course called Business Accelerator, Business Training. And you can take it through the PCA and uh, everything you're gonna hear today, uh, the origin story of this company, uh, the trials, the tribulations, the learnings are basically condensed down into a multi-week course with a learning management system and a group of other people you can take like a crash course into how to professionalize your business. And there's links there and links there for everything else, but that's not why you guys are here. You wanna hear about the origin story of this company. So it's been 15 years. I will start off by saying this, um, everything that you guys know of me now, everything you see, the artifacts of me, Ask a Painter, um, Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company, the things you can touch and feel have all been created in about the last five or six years, um, built on a lifetime of learning. But this has not been a 15 year trip where, uh, where every year I do something to progress my life. You could argue that for 25 years, I got, I got introduced to this industry probably when I was 10, as far as I can tell. This is back before social media and digital archives, so I'm going to have to take a meander through uh, physical scrapbooks at some point. But as far as I can tell, I got introduced by my father and mother to this industry at about 10 years old. I'm 40, so my life in some way has revolved around and in and of 
painting in Minnesota, in the upper Midwest, residential painting. And so I have been a painter longer than I have not been a painter by a lot of years. And yes, at 10 years old, I was not working full time in an apprenticeship program for the union, getting taught the craft, but I was working for the family business and our life revolved around this family business. I have lived the life of somebody involved with the painting business for 30 years. And uh, it's been a very, very interesting trip. But you could argue that I spent 25 years in this industry being very unintentional, not talking to other painters, not collaborating, not learning from other people, not owning a sprayer, not owning a pressure washer, not writing anything down, not treating people the way that I wanted to be treated. And this wasn't bad. It's just I did exactly what was par for the course in the trades 30 years ago, which is an old grumpy dude yelling at some young, happy person. And uh, that person, if they love the craft well enough like me, they'll stick it out through thick and thin and go through great hardship to be here because they love it so much. Um, Or you take the path of everybody else, which is, I don't need this. This old grumpy dude is not making my life better. They're not teaching me anything. There's no future in this as far as I can tell. He doesn't seem happy, wealthy, physically fit, doesn't like his family, anything else. And so why am I in the trades? And, you know, obviously gross overgeneralization, but for anybody who's grown up in the last 30 or 40 years in a trades business or a family business, you know exactly that this is, this is a, a cliche for a reason. It's a cliche for a reason because that's most people's experience in the trades, which is dad does a trades-based business, probably makes mom do the books or support the business in some way. Maybe she volunteers to do it. Um, her labor is never accounted for. His labor is never accounted for. And if you have a couple sons, you grow your business. And if you have a couple daughters, you hope that they go off to school uh, to do uh, college, to do something real. And the boys will just join the business. And that's normally how it goes. Um, I got raised in the most stereotypical, prototypical trades, family-based trades business in the upper Midwest you could possibly do. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to have that experience because I know what the trades used to be and maybe still are, but there's been a lot of change in there. Um, about six years ago, five, six years ago, um, a guy named Jason Paris reached out to me on Instagram, uh, another Minnesota painter, uh, he, cause he uh, had a good upbringing and he learned to collaborate and uh, reach out to other painters. At that time, I also got introduced to uh, the PCA, the Painting Contractors Association. At this time, it was the Painting and Decorators Contractors Association, PDCA. And um, by Chris Shank, actually. Uh, Chris Shank was a friend of my wife's via Instagram. And he was not involved in the painting industry. Got a job at this painting industry thing. And I was the only house painter he knew, so he reached out to me. I wrote a treatise, uh, which uh, which I can pull up here at some point. Uh, and then he got me involved with the PCA uh, soon after I met Jason Paris. And a lifetime of collaboration and uh, trades friendship uh, was was sort of born there. And so I say this because... I was in this trade for 25 years doing exactly what my father did. You get a half ton pickup, you fill it full of gear, you drive around and work 100 hours a week, making really happy clients, not really making that much money, being really proud of what you've done, being taught to martyr yourself and to suffer is the greatest calling of a human being. And the more you martyred yourself and the more you suffered, uh, the better off you were. Um, You might have made happy people, you may have worked long hours. You may not have any money, but you know what? People think you're a hard worker. And um, there's the, it's good to have a work ethic, but um, 
there's another way to do it too. There's an intelligent way to do this thing where you don't murder yourself and you don't uh, negate your family and you don't negate your community and everything else. And you still make happy clients, but you can also make money uh, because uh, there's a lot of risk <laughs> involved in what we do. And if you don't take into that account, you basically just created a job for yourself and not a business. And I was making great money early on as a single owner operator. I mean, arguably, probably between eighty and a hundred thousand um, dollars of money that I could spend, give or take. And uh, the problem was, I never accounted for my hours. So, the average paint business looks in the U.S. looks like maybe one to one point five people. That's arguably ninety eight, ninety nine percent of our industry is single owner operators. That prototypical single owner operator will likely go out of business two years, give or take. And they will likely take home $43,000 a year, which equals about $21.50 an hour. Uh, Two-thirds of my company makes more than that as employees, and they have no risk. And they don't have the worries, evenings, weekends, things like that. They got world-class support team and training. They don't have to do estimates um, in the evenings for free, and they will always get paid. And that's not the life of a paint business owner. And I was basically working 100 hours a week making eighty dollars to $100,000 a year, and I thought I was doing very well. But I never did job costing, and I never accounted for my own time. I soon come to realize that I had two and a half, $43,000 a year jobs. I was making $21 an hour. I just worked 100 hours a week. There you go. That's how you make the money in the trades. And um, it's fine. I enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But most people don't know they're doing that, and that becomes a big problem. So here's the story of the reformation of myself and the origin stories of this company. Uh, I was born 1982 in New Prague, Minnesota, the place that I live right now. Uh, I've I born and raised my entire life here, only left for four years to do the army, which we'll talk about later, but this is it. This has been my home. I mean, I remember when we didn't have a fast food restaurant, we only had one stoplight. Interesting story. We had two stoplights, and then we took out one of our stoplights. <laughs> so we're back to a one-stoplight town, which is really awesome. I like that. Um, I remember my aunt's house was at the edge of town, and we used to play in the field. And now that's where all the fast food restaurants are and things like that. So I'm just old enough now to start uh, commiserating and, uh, and talking about the old times like that. But um, early years of my life, uh, my parents were both um, English major, journalism majors. Uh, my mom came from a family uh, who owned the, the local newspaper here. And my father was an English major. Um, I believe he paid for his college house painting in the summer and doing some other odd jobs at state parks, things like that, back in the day where you could work a summer and pay for state college. And uh, as far as I can tell, he met my mother, wanted to get into that family business of publishing a newspaper, and the family just didn't have a place for him there, which is really ironic because of another part of the story later on. Um, as far as I can tell, I think my father talked my mother into leaving her own family newspaper business to basically do something else. And she's worked a series of jobs over the years. I don't believe she's used to her full potential. Uh, she's an amazingly smart woman, but uh, I think she, I think she may have. Uh, I think she may have got talked into leaving her own family business when maybe they couldn't buy in or they couldn't be the publishers or something. So we have two people, very highly educated, very intelligent. And, uh, you know, my father, I think he just uh, went back to the thing he could count on, which is um, starting a paint business. And uh, I don't know the exact year um, 
he started it, I would assume it's within a couple years of me being born. So it's likely that my father's painting business is probably 40 plus years old, give or take. All right, sick. Take it easy, dude. And uh, he's been operating it in this town. As far as I can tell, he still sort of operates it. I see his truck around. I see his ad in the paper. I don't know how much business he does now. Um, but the early years uh, of living life as a you know, in the family of a paint business owner, it was sort of like we always took vacations in December and January because that's when it got a little slow, right? We never did the summer vacation because that's go time. I remember my dad, and he always had pickup trucks. He always had very organized gear. Um, I remember some early mornings. I remember some late nights. At one point, he owned a big orange boom truck that he must have got from like the highway department or something. But I uh, typically, I would always hear the stories about you know, uh, the houses he's painted in town, the people he met, and he was a lover of characters, uh, maybe, maybe still is, but I would, he would always regale us with the stories of the interesting folks that he came across. And, uh, I loved all the sort of weird niche um, I don't want to call them like weirdos, but there's always like, you know, the stories of all the eccentrics everywhere in our, in our local community. And it's just these beautiful stories of unique humans that live in unique ways. And, you know, being a house painter, you get to go in their house and you're there for sometimes weeks at a time. And there's a lot of these farmers and stuff that would come out and sit there and follow you around all day and tell you stories about the entire fifth generation family farm and all the neighbors and the crazy things that happened about how an airplane hit a power wire in this farm and crashed in 1940 or something, you know, just weird, weird stuff like that. Uh, lots of, lots of local history got disseminated through that sort of thing. But it was nice. I, I, it connected us with the community. Um, we were very prevalent, uh, maybe still are, in the community because we're in so many people's houses. And uh, there's this base of trust where your kids are going to the schools and your parents both live and work in the town. And people see you and know you and you're involved with the community. And it's a great way to grow up. Yeah, there's this like embedded family community sort of thing here. And I didn't really think much about it. Um, early years, I was really interested in building stuff, going outside wandering around. I lived a very prototypical um, suburban, rural farm life, give or take. I grew up in town my entire life, but I love the wilderness. Um, I did all the things that kids in the 80s and early 90s did, which is I got on a bike and I just drove around town with my friends doing stuff, exploring. We'd go to construction sites and build a jump. We'd go into the woods and we'd explore. We'd drive around all the paths and the sidewalks and just just urban exploration, just kids wandering around doing stuff, things like that. And I was grateful for this free roaming sort of existence like this. Um, we moved a lot. So my dad was, as far as I can tell, he's an unintentional house flipper. I don't think he had this intentional plan of like buying a house, improving it, selling it for a profit, moving on. I think that was the outcome. And I think he probably did very well for himself for a whole bunch of years. Uh, he loved 1950s and 60s Ramblers, and I grew to have an affinity for these houses. You know, the last houses with strip oak flooring and plaster walls, real plaster walls and things like that. And we moved a lot, man. Uh, there was, um, when we stayed kind of in the same neighborhoods, give or take, I think my dad just got bored, needed some attention or something like that, and kind of just, you know, moved a house and liked improving it. Uh, liked uh, making changes to the house. He always did things like super smart and economical. He never did like, you know, uh, one year renovations where he hired a contractor and did it. It was more of like he fixed up the outside himself. Not a lot of carpentry and stuff like that, but like three headed little dude. <laughs> He's looking for a new spot. <laughs> 
And uh, he would, you know, being a painter, he would fix up the outside. He would fix up the inside, do all that stuff. Once in a while, he'd get some new kitchen cabinets or something. Happy to go on the ground, little buddy. Can't get comfortable. <laughs> all right, dude. Here you go. Ugh. Ah. So he would fix these things up with mainly his own labor and a little bit of our labor. And yeah, then every couple of years he would sell it. And there was one point where our uh, grandparents, uh, my mom's parents, uh, and actually moved in with us. My, my grandfather was a quadri quadriplegic due to MS. So he was wheelchair bound most of my life. I can't remember a time where he was uh, walking. It might've been when I was young, but um, so I grew up around um, a saint of a grandmother, uh, Betty. Uh, we all call her Nana, and she was a caregiver. She was a professional nurse way back in the day, um, a very Catholic person. Uh, that was how we got introduced to most of that. Most of the customs and traditions got passed down to the, the Ro Roman Catholicism through her. And she was basically a loving, devoted wife and caregiver to a quadriplegic husband their whole life. And uh, they lived with us, and our whole house was wheelchair accessible. Uh, everywhere we traveled, we had a handicapped van, things like that. And uh, just witnessing somebody giving care uh, at that level for an eternity of a lifetime is just an amazing thing to see somebody that devoted. And that really sort of like, that set the ground for like, you know, marriage and things like that for me. Very important things. Um, but yeah, they, they eventually moved out to a local lake, Cedar Lake out here. They owned a lot at a dead end, a triple lot, and with a bay next to it where the carp would spawn. And that sort of sparked off um, the craziest upbringing ever like that place was just mystical for me the the cow pastures the woods the lake the wilderness um they gave me boats they gave me skis they gave me bikes they gave me everything you can think of everything you can think of and just wandered i just i snorkeled in a bay i explored the lake i i fished i swam i did every single thing you can do out there it was just a wonderful wonderful upbringing and i feel like Almost every weekend, me and my brother were probably dropped out there. <laughs> um, that's just a recollection. Of, I don't know, feelings-based, not database. But um, yeah, I spent, I felt like most of my childhood out there with my grandmother and my uncle. My uncle eventually uh, moved out there as well, too. And he was known as like a play pig. Like he was the water skier, the snow skier, the mountain biker, uh, the everything you can get into. Cars, things like that. He just had stuff and he knew stuff, snowmobiles um, and, and just super mechanical mind, amazing human being and like the epitome of what it was to be like a cool adult. You know, he's, he's like my hero and still is in, in a lot of ways to this day and uh, great family. Uh, I believe he's in private equity right now. Uh, lives out West, but yeah, still to this day, like superhuman advisor, but like getting those, um, getting pushed into like water skiing, uh, snow skiing, uh, snowmobiles, outdoor stuff, mechanical things. Uh, it was just an amazing upbringing out there. It's just full of wonder and mysticism and things like that. And I still have dreams about it to this day. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, that was that was a, that was basically from zero to ten. Uh, obviously, there's lots of machinations that happen in there, but I had kind of a soft, relatively standard, rural, farmy, suburban upbringing in town, and it was great. Great bunch of friends, great community, uh, all the summer activities, things like that, and uh, it was it was just a wonderful place to grow up. But I never really paid attention to much of the family painting business stuff, and that's something where I have to try to reconstruct it for my kids. Go through the old uh, picture scrapbooks and things like that. Um, 
10 to 18 got a little more interesting. So as far as I can tell, I got started being introduced to the family painting business kind of formally at about 10, somewhere right in there. And uh, I did, I had all the trials and tribulations of a young teenager. Uh, I gave my parents pure hell. I was not a good teenager, man. I, I didn't do crazy illegal stuff. I didn't do a lot of harmful stuff, but my God, did I rebel. Oh man, I must have made my parents' life a living hell for a lot of years. I just remember fighting all the time with them. Like I felt this like angst and I, I remember like there's this one thought that goes through my head and I think I even said it out loud a bunch of times, which is like, I wish I could just be an adult so we could get past all this like BS and this stuff about you're a parent and I'm a kid and there's certain has to, like I just wanted to get out and do stuff in the worst way. And I don't know if this is the case, but I feel like this is a plight of all tried and true entrepreneurs where you just have this itch where you're just like, can you just let me do this already? Like you don't know this, you have nothing to base this on. You don't have any trust in what I'm about to do or say, but like, I don't want to be a 12 year old kid. I want to do stuff. I want to get out there and make things. I want to get out there and affect some change. I just, but again, when you're 10 to 18, you don't have these mature thoughts you have no life experience. You haven't experienced anything real in life yet, uh, besides a pretty soft upbringing. So that it manifested itself in just a lot of like, I'm angry all the time. I just, I have this feeling. I don't know what to do with it. I just want to get out here and do stuff. And it's just like, yeah, that's how it manifests itself. So I will apologize to all my family uh, and my brother included uh, for that sort of thing because I can't have been a good person to uh, live with. I wish I would have had that channeled into something because that's a powerful, 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 powerful energy that could have been used for good. And nobody really pulled me aside and cha uh, channeled it in, in any way. Not that they were supposed to, but it would have been great to have somebody just pull you by the collar and say, listen, man, you don't know this yet, but that angst you feel is going to be a superpower someday. It's going to treat you very, very well. But right now, hang tight. And here's maybe some things you can do in the meantime to help out <laughs> and uh, calm your family a little bit too. But that didn't happen. Um, my father was um, uh, uh, savagely anti-mechanical, things like that. Like nothing that involved a tool he was interested in. And I have to think that at this time, I started being very interested in mechanical stuff <laughs> as, as a rebellion. I don't know. I just like the inner workings of things. I like building things. I like creating things. Creating things is the greatest thing on earth. And as an entrepreneur, we get to create some real, real things. And so I really got into like mechanical stuff, like vehicles and off-road and, and old historic vehicles and just anything mechanical just interests me uh, a great deal. Don't know if it was driven by this rebellious nature to do something my father hated or not, uh, but either way, it was. Um, I really got into that, which uh, which then informed my career in the army later. Um, but from ten to eighteen, give or take, uh, I worked evenings, weekends, holidays, summer. You know how it is family trades-based business. And the general idea was I felt like I had I had cash to buy stuff. I know a lot of it came from, I worked at the Ace Hardware, which I still buy a lot of my paint from now. The same family still owns that awesome family. They gave me my first real job, uh, evenings and weekends, um, when I wasn't painting there. And that taught me a lot about this mechanical stuff. I got like, if you ever want a crash course in how houses work or building stuff works, work in a hardware store. Cause you think about it, electrical, plumbing, fasteners, uh, cutting windows, screen repair, fixing bikes, mixing paint. I used to, I used to be the, uh, I used to love stationing myself in the paint department 
back with the old mixers where you'd pull up the colorant in there, pull down the thing and in inject it into the paint can. And then the nozzles would dry off and it'd shoot onto your shirt. And then the colorant wouldn't be right. And I used to hand match colors between like, you know, I, I think I got my first job at 14, 15, probably 14, give or take. But I was mixing paint. I was custom mixing paint by eye there with, uh, with no paint computer. I remember when we got our first color matching computer, an amazing thing. But that also taught me a lot about having like a real job. Like, um, I re the biggest thought or takeaway I have from that is, um, I don't know where this comes from, biology, upbringing, whatever, maybe a combination. But I remember when they would give me a task to mop the floors, I would do it in almost like this, like punitive, vengeful way. Whereas like nobody will ever sweep or mop these floors better than me. And every single time I do it, I'm going to cut time off and I'm going to get better every single time. I'm going to singularly devote my life to mopping this floor. Uh, that's, I don't know if that was taught or biology, like I said, but it was there. And, uh, I treated a lot of things in my life, which is like, take them to the extreme, which is if I'm going to be a mopper, I'm going to be the best. If I'm going to be a house painter, I'm going to be the best. If I'm going to be a husband, I'm going to be the best. If I'm going to be a father, I'm going to be, it can be pretty harmful at times. It's, it's not productive in some ways because then you can fall into this notion of, well, if I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it. Or you get frustrated because you can't do it perfectly or cause you're not world-class at something. Some things you don't need to be world-class at. Mopping the floors, you can be fair to Midland and still everybody will praise you because it's a task that doesn't draw a lot of attention and sometimes you just need to get stuff done. My young brain did not separate any of that stuff. But I, I approach everything like that. I, I'm going to do this to an extreme way in some way. Um, I did uh, uh, track and field. Uh, I did cross country. Of course, I did the football. I did the baseball. I did all the other sports that people do, basketball and whatnot. I really gravitated towards um, uh, running and, uh, you know, uh, discus, uh, pole vault, uh, you know, things like that, shot put that were sort of like individual and you could affect those things yourself, which was a great thing for me because it was very, um, I kind of like being independent. I like being alone a lot of the time. I wasn't an extrovert at all. Uh, probably still am not. But when you did like, I kind of gravitated towards distance running at that point. So uh, cross country was a great thing for me. Um, push myself there. It was really fun to do. It was an individualistic race. You could uh, train for it. You didn't depend on a team, things like that. You just kind of did it. And I liked all the weird stuff about track and field, the triple jumps, the pole vault, the discus, the things like that, where it's like, you know, in these rural communities, there's not a lot of people that do it. So if you devote yourself to it, you can really kind of clean up a little bit. And I had a lot of fun just experiencing like pushing your body and pushing your mind and things like that. Um, the one interesting takeaway from all that is it really did expose the first inklings of like, I really had a soft upbringing. <clears throat> Uh, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but it was soft compared to a lot of people who perform very well. And I might've been coddled. I might not have been, it's hard to say in comparison, it's all feelings based. And as a kid, you're not going to have, you know, objective feelings about all this, but when it came time to really push yourself, ex excel to the next level, I didn't do it. I was fine. I was good. I performed better than a lot of other people, but I didn't perform better than a lot of other people too. Uh, it was just something where I hit this limit where uh, I just couldn't push myself beyond that. My, my, my mental capacity was the limit of what I was doing. I felt like my body had some more horsepower left in it, but for some reason I was just never taught as a kid to push and grind and go past things like that, which would change later in life with some life experience. But it was really interesting at that point. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, a. 
in hindsight, you think about a lot of these things a lot differently than you do now, right? Um, teenage years, um, 10 to 18. Other than that, I had a great group of friends in high school. Uh, I met my core group of friends, uh, probably eighth, ninth grade, give or take. Great people, salt of the earth people. Uh, and uh, I admire those people to this day. Uh, and uh, after that, we kind of get into... We kind of get into this interesting, like, I went into the army. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, between 18 and 22, I signed up for active duty service in the army. I didn't do reserves. I just went straight in. And when I went to the recruiting station, and I did this like right after I graduated in June, a week or two later, I was gone. Um, I honestly cannot tell you why I joined the army. It was probably just to rebel against my family a little bit. Um, I knew I was going to college at some point. That was a given. Like with my parents both being uh, educated in the fine arts and things like that, it was a it was a given. Like, well, you're going to go to college, but for some reason, it was like college almost felt like an extension of working for the family business in the summers and then going to school, probably to support the family business. It kind of felt like my life had been the same since ten. And I don't know if I can still put the finger on why I joined the army, but I just signed up for the active duty. And again. You're not going to go reserves. I did the extreme thing, which is I'm just going to be a professional soldier. I'm just going to sign up. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to devote my life to it. And you know what? When I'm in the army, can't paint, can't do any of this other stuff. I'm getting away. I'm doing some stuff. Um, and again, this was this young angst. And it wasn't like I want to travel. I want to experience new cultures. I want new experiences, things like that. It wasn't a sophisticated thought. It was like, I'm going to do a thing that's kind of extreme. And I did it. And this was the year 2000. I graduated in the year 2000. Um, and uh, I was in the army for a year, give or take. And uh, that was a crazy time. It was peacetime army, right? Uh, the events of 9-11 happened while I was in active duty service, uh, which adds a lot of color and a, a lot of opportunities uh, to a professional soldier uh, at that time. But the peacetime army, I got one year of basically, I went to South Carolina for basic training. Um, I went, I stayed at South Carolina for my uh, AIT or advanced training. Uh, and what's really interesting is that I really wanted to do something crazy in the army, some combat arms MOS, but they were not giving out any bonuses for that at the time. So in the year 2000, I thought, well, you know what? I like, I like mechanics. Is there any bonuses for mechanics? And they're like, well, we have a light wheel mechanic, which is basically like a Humvee mechanic. I was like, oh my God, that sounds great. Like you get to work with these crazy Humvees. And there was like 6,000 sign on bonus for that thing. But the recruiter was like, hey, wait a second here. We got this like weird thing. I've never, I've never even heard about it. It's called heavy wheeled vehicle mechanics. And they're giving like a $12,000 bonus for it. It was a 63 Sierra is the, is the code. Um, the MOS code for that thing. I think 63 Bravo was light wheel mechanic. 63 Sierra was the heavy wheel mechanic. I was like, what's even a heavy wheel mechanic? And they showed me pictures of these crazy Hets, Hammets, uh, all this other crazy military vehicles. Just massive. I'm mean, like a, a semi. A tractor trailer was the smallest thing you would work on. I didn't know anything about mechanics at this time. I just had an interest. And uh, so basically, I was just like, hey, 12,000 bucks. Uh, and at that time, I think it was, I think it was tax free too. They would just hand you, they would cut you a check as soon as you got done with training for like 12 grand. I was like, great, let's do that. And uh, complete coincidence. It played in my favor in a massive way. Um, so basically here I am, I joined the army as a heavy wheeled vehicle mechanic, not knowing anything about mechanics at all. And, uh, I wasn't even sure if I really liked it. I had an interest in it. Uh, so I did my basic training, South Carolina, 
uh, advanced training, uh, job training in South Carolina. And then um, crazy amounts of experiences down there. Imagine being from a soft upper Midwest, um, pretty white bread, sort of like safe rural farm town upbringing. And then you get sent to South Carolina from people all over the U.S. Um, colors, cultures, creeds, every single thing about every other human was different. And I loved it. I absolutely love being exposed to that stuff. In the barracks, um, we had to actually wait to start basic training. And one of the most interesting times in my life was these multiple weeks where the army would never tell you what's going on. Uh, you thought you got on a bus one day um, and then all of a sudden you get off that bus and there's a drill instructor yelling at you and you start doing push-ups and shooting guns. That's not how the federal government works. So I signed up, they shipped me out. Uh, I took a series of Greyhound buses and craziness uh, with this group of recruits from Minnesota. And we basically had to make our way across the country, 18 years old, having never really left this place through a series of bus stations and weird transfers and getting exposed to some crazy stuff along the way. You can imagine a group of 10, 18 year olds who have never really left the upper Midwest being sent via, via Greyhound bus in the middle of the night to South Carolina, give or take. And that's kind of what we did. Um, one of the most interesting times was they laid us off, laid us over. Um, we did not start basic training right away. The first day I was there, we had multiple weeks where they didn't tell us day to day, whether we were coming, we we're going, we we're almost in jail. Like we suddenly, we, we sat in these barracks, we did a whole bunch of cleaning. We did exercise. We, we formed up, we marched down to eat chow. We'd come back. They wouldn't allow us to sit or lay on our bunks cause you couldn't just nap during the day. So we kind of just hung around and we played dominoes. I learned all sorts of crazy domino and card games. We played dice, um, freestyle battle wrapping, uh, and stories. We used to sit up till two, three, four in the morning and people would just tell stories of growing up all over the U S and it was wild. It, it, it was more interesting to me than any TV show, movie, radio program, podcast I've ever listened to just listening how people grew up all over the place. And again, those crazy stories of the eccentrics around them, the crazy adventures, um, their families, things like that. It was absolutely wild. I couldn't get enough of it. And, uh, it just really showed you like, what a great crash course into like, boy, you think a lot of your own life and the place you live and you think the world is like this small little place until you get out and experience some other cultures. And these are just people from other states. We're even from the same country. And my, my mind was just like blown and expanded by all these things. And uh, so, yeah, finally we started basic training and it was all the things you thought it would be. We're bayoneting dummies in the woods. We got face paint on. We're doing compass stuff. We're doing live fire exercises. We're throwing grenades, um, shooting automatic weapons. I got to shoot a shoulder fired rocket, things like that. Like amazing experiences. And we finally got our duty stations and I got sent to, of course they would, uh, they would do this like, um, uh, crazy thing where they would actually have you write down what duty stations you want. Like they're going to honor it or something. So it's pretty hilarious. But I, of course I wanted, you know, I wanted Hawaii. I wanted Korea. I wanted Japan. I wanted Italy. I wanted all this. I, like, I just want to get out and do stuff. Uh, they sent me to North Carolina, <laughs> which is just to the North. I had no idea, but again, Kismet coming in as a heavy wheeled vehicle mechanic and then getting sent to Fort Bragg. We're like, I couldn't have planned it. I couldn't have orchestrated it, but it worked out so well in my favor for the adventure and experiences I got. For those of you who don't know about Fort Bragg, North Carolina, it is home of special forces. It is home of the airborne. It is home of Delta force. 
It is home to like the point of the spear, the 18th Airborne Corps, which is, you know, their bragging rights is like, we can be anywhere in the world in 18 hours operational on the ground doing stuff. And uh, you can imagine during a peacetime army, this is great to brag about, you know, because we got an Air Force base right there. It's uh, their home, all the paratroopers, the special forces, all the craziness, you know, uh, they get all the new weapons, all the new stuff. And it's just like high speed, low drag, amazing, like the best of the best in, in, in all of the military uh, are right there. Um, the fastest movers, the strongest people, the strongest mind, uh, the strongest willed. Um, the craziest sort of like expectations are there. And I just got sent there as a leg, somebody who's not airborne. And immediately when I got there, I got a glimpse of the special forces and the airborne. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is what I'm all about here. Like if we're going to do it, we're going to do it extreme. And I want to be part of that because you get to do fun stuff out in the woods, in airplanes and helicopters, things like that. So, uh, at that point, um, if you did not, they would have actually given me another $1,500 sign on bonus if I would have signed up to be a paratrooper. And I was like, well, let's not go overboard. I don't even know what that is. I should have done that because I would have went right from my training to airborne school and then to that. Uh, once you got there as a non-airborne person, a leg, you actually had to fight to get into airborne school. So all of your competency tests, uh, you had to go before boards uh, to sort of like test into it. Your uh, physical fitness scores had to be really high. Your duty, uh, all your marks from your uh, commanding officers had to be really high. And I really broke myself to get into that airborne school. And there's only a couple slots that open up every once in a while. But I did get one, which is great. And uh, they sent me down to Georgia uh, in August to the training. And uh, if you thought Minnesota was humid and hot in August, Georgia is insane. I've never felt hell like that in my life. And uh, for those of you who don't know, if you're a paratrooper, um, yes, you think about jumping out of planes, but paratroopers are known for running. You run a lot because they want, they, want, uh, they want a certain caliber of human and I used to think a strong-bodied human to be a paratrooper, but what I realize now, a lot of these runs were just to make you stronger, willed, things like that. And uh, it did. It uh, Boy, we ran our pants off. Everywhere, every time, every place, combat boots, packs, everything else. Uh, I went to uh, airborne school down in Georgia, did all the crazy uh, stuff down there, night jumps, day jumps, still some of the greatest memories. Uh, probably three nights don't go by where I don't dream of these night jumps that I used to do there. Uh, jumping out and seeing um, lights from the towns and the drop zones and light from the stars. And when you're flipping around before your chute opens, you're seeing them alternate. Ground lights, skylights, ground lights, skylights. And then when your chute opens, drifting down in the darkness, not knowing where the next paratrooper is in the sky. And hopefully you're going towards a landing zone and not a tree or a thing or something else. But that, that eight second piece of just floating around in the sky, like there's nothing I can do right now. Uh, if something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. I can control what I can control. And just doing that, uh, not three nights go by, I don't have a dream about that. That is a wonderful thing. Um, biggest takeaway from that is uh, now in hindsight, I realize like one of the biggest life lessons I ever had was during that time which was I, uh, I like to control a lot of things. I like to put forth a lot of effort so I can control things. And then at some point you like, I see business owners do this now where they want to spreadsheet themselves out of problems and they never actually take action. They just plan and plan and plan. And then at some point you kind of just have to jump and I just learned to jump. And one of the biggest things was, um, you got rigged up with all this crazy parachute, reserve chute, main chute. You got a, a rucksack tied between your legs. You got a weapons pouch with an automatic weapon in there. 
you got your helmet, you got all this other craziness. And I don't know how to rig any of this stuff. And it would take a full day from getting up early, getting rigged up, and your jump masters, the people who actually know what they're doing, and the parachute riggers would all check you out. And there, there's a very, it's almost like this dance, this cadence, this thing you do to inspect a human's parachute and rigging, where your fingers follow all the straps and you check certain things, you lift things up, you're doing all these safety checks. And I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. And at some point, you prepare the entire day. You go through these manifests. You get on the plane. There's certain procedures for planes. There's procedures for doing stuff on the plane. You stand up. You hook in your static line to the thing. And at some point, you just need to jump. And um, I... It was like this freeing feeling, you know, uh, you would, you'd be standing by the door and I actually got to be the door jumper, the first jumper a few times, which is cool because you get to actually ride in the door, uh, holding your static line, looking out an open door of a plane. Uh, we're probably only 800 to a thousand feet up. So it's looked like you could see somebody waving on the ground. And at some point you realize like if something bad is going to happen to me, it's just going to happen. You can't control this from here on out. We have done all the right things. We have put in all the right work. We've done everything right. And at some point, it's just like force majeure. If something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And you would just jump and you would just let it be. And that feeling of like, you know, you're holding your reserve chute here like this with your arms uh, to protect it so it doesn't uh, accidentally, um, you know, uh, uh, come out or get hooked on anything. And you're basically falling. And a lot of the times you would just fall back and you would see the jet going and you would see the stick of people coming out, you know, just getting ejected from the plane, give or take. And you just be like, this is it. You just got to jump and just let it be. And that was such a great, um, such a great lesson in life. And, uh, I do that now to this day where it's like, you know what plan, do the things that you know work, but then at some point, just do it, just get out, just jump. It's awesome. So I actually see an old paratrooper friend of mine, Eric, here on there as well, too. So good to see you, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eric uh, Eric was very close friend of mine in the military. And, uh, yeah, I used to, by choice, again, doing things the extreme, I used to carry around an M60, uh, which for those of you who don't know, uh, I did this for a stunt, basically. It was Rambo's weapon, the same weapon that he was firing from the hip, that M60 machine gun, the pig, the hog from Vietnam. Uh, I carried one of those around, and I was one of the last dudes to jump on Fort Bragg with the old M60 before we changed over to the uh, saws, the squad automatic weapons, or uh, the newer ones, uh, 240 Bravos or whatever they're called now. Uh, but lighter <laughs> squad machine guns, things like that. But I realized you could get one of these. And my, my weapon actually had a serial number from the Vietnam War, which is pretty cool. So I got to carry that thing around. And I suffered for it because I would take it on ruck marches. It was super heavy. But my God, on range day, boy, that was that thing fun. You could uh, you could hit a, a human-sized target 800 yards away, no problem. In, uh, you know, three to six uh, bullet bursts with tracers and things like that. It was absolutely wild. And once you had that thing dialed in, you could basically just, you know, basically through some Kentucky windage, you'd go and it'd be a two second delay. And then you would hear it hit the target like that uh, half a mile away, which is really cool. I like that one a lot, but it was fun to carry around and jump with uh, things like that. But taught you to just go and uh, probably taught Eric the same thing. It was uh, it was a great upbringing. But then 9-11 happened. And I remember uh, I was actually working with a kid from New York uh, uh, who was a paratrooper as well. And we were just fixing some low boy trailer out in the um, uh, out in the yard. Well, I should say this. How this 63 Sierra, this mechanic thing, came into play was that uh, by chance, just by cosmic chance, when I got to this duty station, the only jump slots for that um, 
mechanic and maintenance platoon worked for heavy wheeled vehicle operate, uh, vehicle mechanics. If I would have been that Humvee mechanic, I would not have got a slot to actually jump. Being a paratrooper is one thing, but being a paratrooper and having the ability to jump regularly, weekly, monthly is a huge thing. And just by chance, I had one of those slots and I fought for it. And I, I maintained that slot for a long time. And I think they, they paid you some hilarious amount of money, like a hundred or $150. Eric, you might be able to remember that. Uh, uh, they paid you extra to jump a couple times a month to maintain this jump status. Uh, so that if you did need to jump, you were actively trained and you had your uh, training uh, kept up and things like that. I think it was 150 bucks a month, which is hilarious. And they would still take taxes out of that to throw yourself out of a plane, uh, which is cool. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, that was a great thing. And it got me out of the standard, um, sort of like soldier duty. Uh, I go jump out of planes every, uh, every month and it was super fun to do. And I absolutely loved it. And, uh, yeah, super fun time. But interestingly enough, you know, we're sitting there in Fort Bragg, home of the airborne, and, uh, we can be anywhere in the world in 18 hours operational and nine 11 happened. And I was working with a soldier, uh, from New York. We were working on a little boy trailer and word hit that, uh, planes hit hit the world trade center and we all went back to the barracks we had our one tv on the wall we were all just watching it happen and if i'm perfectly honest i had no idea what was going on i didn't understand the impact of that event i just thought it was a thing that happened and i did this is how young and without life experience i had which is i didn't even connect it to my life like wow i bet you my life's gonna change now i was just looking at it because it was just such a weird like I had no reference point for it. So you just stared at it like bewildered and not really knowing what's going on. Uh, immediately though, uh, the army let me know what was going on and we strung up razor wire across the entire base. Uh, they closed down the base. It was an open base. Uh, you used to be able to just drive in and do stuff. And now checkpoints everywhere, automatic weapons, guards, razor wire, all this other stuff. And, uh, they started fueling up jets right away. Again, we're, we're the tip of the spear there at that base. We brag about being anywhere in the world where they need us in 18 hours. And that Air Force base that was attached, they fueled up all the jets and they basically just started sending people over in the initial waves of uh, uh, Afghanistan and all this other stuff. And uh, at this point, um, right before 9-11, I was really... I was really hyped up on getting on a deployment. Like I really wanted to go experience some stuff and be a real soldier somewhere. And before that time... Uh, it was not a given. Now deployments are sort of like this burden for your family. Like you get sent overseas and you, you got to do a bunch of stuff. But uh, before 9-11, they were far and few between. And again, you had to test really well. Your physical fitness had to be up. You had to get high marks from all your commanders. And I actually got to go on a couple weird ones, uh, a couple stateside ones. Um, where we actually, uh, we didn't know this. They would never tell us the mission, but uh, we went to this old abandoned Air Force base and we sort of set up shop. And I was the uh, I was the sort of like guy who drove around on a John Deere Gator in camouflage on the actual tarmac uh, on the airfield. And there was like fighter jets there and there was cargo jets and all these guys with beards and civilian clothes would show up with these crazy customized Humvees. And what I didn't know, I soon became realized that uh, we're sending out special forces people like crazy on this old abandoned uh, Air Force base. And just to see fighter jets take off and do stuff and to load all these guys with, you know, uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses and beards and flannel shirts and going overseas. I had no real context for what was going on, but I had a blast, like learning from these guys, hanging out, um, just all the craziness that goes along with that. Uh, just experiencing that side of the military, which is super fun. Um, 
before I get into the deployment stuff, I actually got one of the craziest experiences that kind of let me understand how soft of an upbringing I had was I got, I volunteered and got tasked out to the special forces on Fort Bragg a lot. Like they're like, Hey, uh, when we do these, uh, green beret, uh, courses where guys go through this multi-year process to become a green beret, one of the final tests they have to do is like this field experiment where they have to like make contact with a group of natives, uh, of young soldiers who act like natives out in the woods. And you need to turn them into a fighting force. And then you're going to take your fighting force and go war against another fighting force. And this is what special forces, Green Berets do, which is they operate in countries, they get dropped in, and they sort of affect change by working with local people. So you got to know local languages. You got to know a whole bunch of like medic, weapon stuff, um, uh, communication, things like that. And you're basically uh, civilization building and you're like creating an army from local uh, people there, inhabitants. And uh, so when I heard like, oh my God, you can go into the woods for weeks at a time. You don't have to shave. You don't even have to wear a uniform. You just hang out with these special forces guys. I volunteered for that all the time. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, so they would send me out there and these guys would get dropped in uh, by plane and they would have to find you. So we'd be camping out in the woods, having a good time, making fires, sleeping under the stars, uh, just sitting there and like cut off army pants and sleeveless shirts and uh, beards and stuff like that. And pretty soon these guys would find you in the woods and they actually like taught us stuff. They, they like actually, they took this very seriously. They whipped us into a fighting force and uh, we would have to procure food locally. So we'd go buy pigs from local farmers and we'd you know, we cook pigs in the woods and we do all these night missions, uh, with these guys. And we would, they taught us like, you know, with my M60 and stuff, they taught us how to like do night missions from the back of a pickup truck where we show up and we like, we're shooting out transformers on telephone poles, uh, to bring the local infrastructure down of the enemy and things like it was just wild. Like you learn all camping, guns, physical fitness, communication, the medical stuff. I befriended a couple medics, Guys who went through and basically got like a crash course over the course of a year in like emergency medicine. Uh, and they taught me a wild amount of stuff. Like we were messing with pigs, taking out the organs and, you know, between knife wounds and gunshot wounds. They were teaching me how to fix things up. It was just wild times out there. But you can imagine an 18, 19 year old young cowboy with really no attachment to this earth. Um, not a lot of life experience. That is just like, that's wildness and uh, taught me a lot about one of the one of the craziest hardest dudes I've ever met in my life was a guy I think he was from uh, uh, Chicago uh, a very rough part of Chicago biggest dude I've ever seen like he would wear a rucksack and you could still see like a foot of each shoulder on either side of the rucksack and he could carry two guys in a rucksack he carried the the shoulder fired weapons uh, crazy amount of stuff I mean he must have been 280 pounds uh, six foot five give or take this guy couldn't stop. You couldn't stop him. He would run through the woods with 200 pounds of gear for a week if you let him. Uh, the interesting thing I found out, though, is that like the toughest, best soldiers aren't necessarily the people with the rippling muscles. They are the ones with the craziest minds. They could not be stopped. And it just showed me like, oh, my God, I am like I'm the weakest dude on the planet. And I actually, after doing all this stuff before 9-11, I actually signed up for the Q course, uh, the Green Beret uh, qualification course. I, I passed all the medical. Uh, I passed the initial physical stuff, uh, the physical requirements, and I actually had a date set for it. And then 9-11 uh, happened. Um, I would not have made it. I would not have made it. I am not that mentally tough for that sort of thing, at least at that time. I probably am not now either. I shouldn't delude myself. But it was a it was something I realized that 
um, when I went overseas, I realized I never would have made it through that course. Like the guys I met, uh, their upbringings were rough, man. They were all on their own. They didn't really have a lot of parental figures. They had to figure a lot of stuff out. There were gangs, there were fights, there were drugs, there were alcohol. These dudes were tough. They got raised all on their own to do crazy things. And um, the mental toughness of these people got them through. And that's what that's what really taught me what it takes to do that stuff. And uh, so in a way, I almost got off the hook. Uh, it would have been pretty embarrassing not to make it through there. Um, but it did teach me about that, which is a big thing, this mental toughness. And uh, a lot of life is basically this mental toughness. So 9-11 happened and uh, <coughs> I was not the initial uh, wave. I don't think I was even the second wave. I might've been the third wave in there. It's, it's really hard to tell because we basically all just packed up and left. Uh, but we flew into Bagram. Uh, uh, Afghanistan was first, Iraq was second, flew into Bagram. And uh, we basically just got there in the middle of the night, uh, as you do, because you don't really fly in during the day much in a war zone. And uh, boy, did I get a crash course in in, uh, in uh, um, that culture, that part of the world there. It was, everything was just like, everything was mystical to me. I, it was so so much far of a departure. Everything was adventure. I loved it. I looked around for people who had families and lives and maybe didn't sign up for this sort of thing. And they're pretty miserable. And, and I, I don't blame them because it's uh, it takes you out of this stuff. But for me, it's kind of embarrassing to say, and I'm a little self-conscious about it, but I had the time of my life. I mean, it was like, I, I hate that a war sort of like gave me that experience and all that goes with it, the horrors of all that stuff. But like, my God, was that an interesting time to be a young male uh, in his, in his, uh, really 1920 going through this stuff and like just the wonderment of it all was just crazy being in this land. And, uh, we landed in an old Soviet airstrip from the eighties that was all cratered out from mortars. Uh, there's minefields everywhere. Um, I volunteered for every single thing I could do every day I could. And a lot of it involved, um, helicopters, um, it's we're in a mountainous area uh at Bagram there supporting the special forces and supporting the airfield and uh wonderful god man what an experience that was uh every time there was a, a helicopter mission to do I volunteered for everything even if it wasn't related they just needed a warm body I threw on my gear and went out and uh, I got to see these guys do target practice on old Soviet tanks we got to fly up tip over the mountains and race back down again. We got to explore all sorts of crazy valleys. And uh, at some point, um, we started uh, dropping supplies off. I volunteered for these humanitarian aid missions where we drop supplies to these villagers that are way out, like, think of like Bamiyan Valley where uh, Genghis Khan came through uh, centuries ago and uh, destroyed all these villages. And the people fled to the um, the mountains and the caves and they're still there to this day. There's still people living in caves there where, you know, they, the kids collect firewood all winter to keep their family alive. Uh, so they don't freeze, you know, in these high desert mountains. And we started bringing humanitarian aid to them. And all of a sudden I was like, Hey, this is a blast. I'm like, I, I feel tons of energy from this. So I actually started collecting uh, humanitarian aid back stateside with a bunch of other soldiers of mine. And we actually, uh, we built, <laughs> I built a structure out of trash and old army tents and things like that. I actually built my own home with the aid of a couple friends out there. I live right next to the airstrip. In my front yard out there was a bombed out Soviet, I don't know, it might have been a MiG or some sort of fighter jet or something, but a fuselage of one there. And I built out of pallets and then this old tent in my house. And I found an old heater 
I traded beer uh, to a guy who knew what he was doing and he hooked up uh, me to electrical to a telephone pole and we had an old heater that would only get you to about 55, 60 degrees, but I was living on my own instead of there. And for some reason, my superior officers and everybody sort of let me do this. I had a John Deere Gator. I had uh, I was tasked out with sort of like fixing things on the airfield and doing missions as needed. And whenever anybody needed something fixed, I went out there and fixed it. And a lot of it had to do with we had these all-terrain forklifts that would hot load these helicopters. You know, the helicopters were still the blades were still rotating. They're ready to go. And we were just loading stuff in the back. And these crazy like Caterpillar tires uh, would get um would get ripped up from the shrapnel that bent up metal it was a metal airstrip over the desert and the, the mortar would hit it and would like flower and we have to go you know pound down all these dang like um you know uh, shrapnel and things like this but the tires would still uh uh get flat and so i'd have to go out there i had no i had i had a you know five gallon bucket of grease and some crowbars and we basically change these tires by hand out in the airfield all the time and it was craziest physical work you've ever do but we got these things running all the time we kept everything working and then missions when we uh when we needed to to pass the downtime and uh flew around a lot in helicopters which was an absolute blast uh when we bring this humanitarian aid out to these people and i really got to know some of these local villages out there and uh, it became like my mission there of like I love this. We connected with everybody, uh, took tons of pictures, got to know people, uh, just amazing culture, amazing people. And, uh, yeah, really let me understand how whitewashed and how simple and how like coddled of an upbringing that I had here in my little farm town. And uh, I love this. I mean, I still raise my family here for this reason. I want a, a coddled safe world-class schools, great community, strong business town to raise my family in. But we also have to go gather some of those experiences every once in a while. So, uh, yeah, life forming uh, for me that that time there, not really knowing what was going on and not appreciating it like I should have. I, I should have delved deep into the history of the region, done some more things. I mean, I saw the Bamian Buddhas up close, the things that the Taliban destroyed. If you've never um, if you've never seen or heard of those, um, go to Wikipedia and uh, just search up Bamian Valley or Bamian Buddhas and craziness, craziness. Um, yeah, the history of those things is wild. Going into a part of the world where the history, like we think 100 years old is old here in Minnesota. Centuries, centuries. There's there's stories and Bible stories about this place over there. It's just wild. So after Afghanistan, um, actually, uh, last part about Afghanistan, met the Germans. Uh, right next to our tent was a tent full of Germans. Uh, Americans are not allowed to drink overseas. Uh, the Germans were. And... Uh, <laughs> It was pretty wild. Uh, they brought homemade sausage. They brought mustard. They had a pallets of Varsteiner over there. And uh, one night in the middle of the night, I was a pretty heavy uh, smoker and chewer at that point. So I'd go outside and have a cigarette in the middle of the night. And I watched the stars in the high desert mountains of Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, next to me, there'd be these guys like singing German songs. <laughs> you could tell, obviously, there's a party. I'm not uh, I'm not uh, foreign to that. And so pretty soon, you know, a, a, a big dude named Jan is outside and he's smoking a cigarette and he's a big German dude with a bald head. And uh, I was out there smoking a cigarette, too. And, you know, in the dark, we're kind of like, hey, you know, how are you? Hey, uh, you know, Deutsch, American, this and that. And I remember he's like, you wanna ein Bier? And uh, asked me if I wanted to have a beer with him. And I was like, kind of looking around like, oh, no, I really couldn't. Nah, I only did one of those things. So I came in and I got to meet these German guys there. 
and they were actually on a Mindbreaker team. Um, they were um, a, a bunch of engineers, uh, combat dudes, uh, mechanics there, and they had one of those Minesweeper things, and they were there with their German Mindbreaker. They were a Mindbreaker team, and uh, some of them were super old school uh, mine detectors, things like that. They actually gave me an old uh, German mine probe thing. I've, craziness but it, it kicked off a lifetime of friends uh one of the best people i've ever met in my life is timo ziegenbein um he is one of the scariest looking humans one of the kindest humans on the planet he's a german dude he's probably six two or six three blue eyes blonde hair steeliest sharpest cheekbones you've ever seen uh triathlete um physically uh, one of the scariest humans i've ever seen in my life but we became very good friends and we've actually traveled to uh uh, yeah, he's come to the States a lot. He's, he's, uh, lived here with me, uh, for vacations, things like that. We've, we've taken him to Northern Minnesota, but lifelong deep friendships were made, uh, at this stuff. Uh, uh, great. Um, um, uh, I have great, uh, admiration for those guys over there, but I spent a lot of my time in that German tent over there with these guys. Every night we'd go over there and we'd be giving it the Halvechtescheise and uh, we'd be drinking German beer, eating homemade sausage with hot mustard and a homemade German bread. And it was the greatest time ever over there. It was just wild. It's amazing we got anything done because of the Germans over there because it was every night they'd bring out the wine, they'd bring out the beer and we were just giving her hell and uh, good time. But came back from Afghanistan. Uh, actually, uh, notable too, uh, met my wife on leave uh, from Afghanistan. She was going to St. Cloud State here, and uh, her roommates were a bunch of Minnesota natives. And when I came home on leave, everybody heard I was coming home on leave. So we loaded up in our trucks and we drove up to St. Cloud State to go uh, party up there as young kids do. And my wife ended up just being one of their roommates, and we, we hit it off. And uh, she sent me Rice Krispie bars and we wrote letters. This is back before, I think I got my first email address, a Yahoo email address in Afghanistan. Nobody used to email at that point, especially 18, 19 year old kids. Um, but we had free armed service mail. So if you used a certain kind of red, white, and blue envelope or whatever, uh, you could write letters and we would send them back to you. So we actually wrote letters and we got this crazy stack of like these old letters, kind of World War One, World War Two style uh, that we have from our correspondence. But uh, man, when I came back, I just assumed that we were going to be together and we were. And later on, we got married, uh, but came back. I had a couple weeks off, uh, hung out with her and some family, and then went back to Iraq. Um, I went to Iraq. Got to see a whole bunch of wild stuff there. The biggest thing for me was uh, they they put us somewhere uh, on the road to Baghdad, not far from Talil Air Force Base, in this like godforsaken, forgotten fueling station. And I think they actually forgot about us there uh, for a whole bunch of months because I remember, like, I remember. I remember just like, we had no food, no water. We kind of just did that stuff on ourselves. We found a Connex, a shipping container, full of these prepackaged meals. And I don't know why this is a good idea, but there was a whole bunch of like this pre, pre-made canned chicken salad that evidently was, uh, you know, safe uh, for storage or whatever. But it was the Iraqi desert and it's like 120 degrees out there. And so we found this like container full of this stuff and we started eating it and it was good. It was fine. Um, we, 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 we moved around a bunch of shipping containers to block us from the dust and the sun. We put a camo net over the top to shade us from the sun. And we sort of just like slept outside on cots in this, in the Iraqi desert. And with the sand fleas and the chiggers that would come out of the sand and bite us. And, uh, it was 90 at night and it was still cold. We were in sleeping bags and, uh, just a wild time. But the biggest thing for me was exploration because again, 
we're seeing a bunch of old weird Soviet, uh, you know, radar stations, all these old bunkers. I, we got to, we snuck out in our Humvees, we took our weapons and we just would explore during the day uh, and night a lot of the time. And uh, we would go out there and like, we found these old uh, bunkers out there that you could obviously tell were hit with like a bunker buster because there's this crazy manhole size cover that went all the way through and then it detonated from the inside. Crazy old war relics. I love the history of all that stuff and old things. So going around, uh, my God, we are, we like, we got to mess around over by like Abraham's temple. What I understand is like from the Bible and things like that. Just like ancient, ancient things over there. One of the funnest things we did, uh, we found a local uh, roadside. Everything would be like this little roadside hut. And this guy would sell, um, you know, what he called hamburgers, which is basically some sort of meat, uh, desert meat. And on uh, homemade bread with some, you know, uh, tomatoes and onions cut up on it and a big slice of what he would call cheese, but was really like some weird homemade butter. And we'd go down there and it was so great because we got sick of this canned chicken salad real quick. So we'd go down there and uh, we'd load up and we'd go sit at this restaurant, which is basically two folding chairs at the side of, you know, a desert road, a dust road. And this guy would make us these things and we would get sick to our stomachs afterwards, of course, because, you know, who knows the origin of that stuff. But it was so fun to get out there and do that. We did it all the time. And then pretty soon we found uh, we found out that we could procure local Iraqi whiskey. And there's not a lot of drinkers in these countries, you know. So this is probably watered down shill whiskey. But uh, it was pretty funny that the, it was called Monica whiskey. And it was real sweet. Uh, there was obviously alcohol in it. It did the trick. But um, it was Monica. And there's a picture of like Monica Lewinsky on the outside or, or a person who looked very much like Monica Lewinsky, which I don't know was some inside joke, uh, some ironic joke. But it was pretty funny. Uh, but we would go and we would traipse around and we would for five bucks, you'd get a bottle of Monica and you'd come back to our little hut in the desert. And we'd be just having a good time. Like we always did our work. We always did the, the things. But we were just young people just making our way in the Iraqi desert. And once in a while we'd go to Talil Air Force Base where the Air Force had air conditioning and hot meals and we'd check in there or we'd do some support. But I think they actually kind of just forgot us for a while there, which is really weird. Um, but got out, uh, got out of the military. Um, uh, my last month or two there, uh, a lot of my people got stop lost in my platoon, but I did not. Uh, they let me get out. I don't know why, if it was just like a number on a spreadsheet or something, but it was, uh, or maybe I had a big red check mark to my name, like this guy's a Bolshevik, get him out. But like, um, yeah, I just got out after my four years. A lot of my people had to spend some extra time there. Uh, don't know why. Maybe I was just a number. But I know the last couple months, as you're ETSing, uh, your, your estimated time of service, you're getting out of the military, you just have to walk around with a big file and get people to stamp things off that you've cleared this and that. And I had a bunch of downtime. And in the military, um, out of sight, out of mind, like Nick's just ETSing, let him go around there. Well, I only had to do one or two appointments a day and I had all this free time. So I was actually painting for cash for superior officers at their private homes uh, in, in Fayette, uh, Fayette, I want to say Vietnam. it's Fayetteville, but everybody called it Fayetteville. For a whole bunch of cash, I was making cash like crazy when I was in the army uh, and those last couple things, I'd show up, I'd paint their houses inside and out, I'd make my couple appointments during the day and I was just hammering these cash side jobs for all these army officers and uh, non-commissioned officers. It was a great time. Uh, but then I got out and I basically loaded up my pickup truck and I just drove home. And uh, obviously going to college, the college years start and uh, I went to college and I made one of the smartest, dumbest decisions in my entire life, which is the idea to go to college was wonderful. Not because you need a college education for any of this stuff, but in hindsight, it let me decompress from childhood, from military. It let you sort of like the things you've seen and done, you can take time to process them instead of just jumping right into the work world. 
Best decision ever was to do that. Worst decision ever was the college I went to. All the humans there were awesome. All the professors there were good. Uh, I just had really bad mentors and advice in my personal life. Um, I picked a college based on closest to home and my ability to work with the family business and paint while I was in college. That's a horrible decision. I should have went to a good college. I went to Minnesota School of Business, which is now defunct. It was in a strip mall. Couldn't say more about the administration, the professors. It's a real accredited college education with real professors doing real rigorous work. I should have went to the University of Minnesota. I should have went to St. Thomas. I, I, I got horrible advice. Um, I believe my father pushed me into this college because it allowed me to work for the family business. That's it. It wasn't a better education. Maybe it was a better education. I don't know. But if I would have went to the University of Minnesota, he probably would have lost me for another four years while I got a real education. I did get a real education, but I think he advised me to go here and I trusted him uh, because it was 25 minutes from home and I could still basically work for the family business. And I got a great education. I had great professors, great mentors and everything else. But I always wondered if I would have got some other advice, how things would have changed, who I would have met. Uh, my college, uh, I did everything to the extreme. I took evening classes. Uh, I took summer classes. I went four quarters a year. I did between 18, 24, 26 quarter, uh, uh, credits a quarter. Everything over 18 was free there. So I was like, load them up. It's just school, you know? And at that point, you know, I, I came from being a paratrooper for being overseas and people are like, well, that's a lot of course load. Are you sure you can read all those books? I was just laughing. Like I lived in a desert and ate hot chicken salad for six months and like ran 12 miles with a rucksack on. Like, are you kidding? reading books? Like this is, are you kidding me? This is, that's what you consider hard. Like you could not let me have a bad day. So I loaded it up. I was getting all sorts of free credits. And I was taking classes, every single class I could. Um, I graduated from there. I actually started the school newspaper for this campus. Um, I, I started an entrepreneurs collective where we worked on business plans together. I was on the leadership committee, the student student leadership committee. I loved it. This is great. I spent so much time at this college, uh, evenings, uh, weekends, summers, everything else. They actually just told me they were going to pay me as a tutor. And I sat in the library and the computer center, computer center, and I would just help people randomly. But I basically lived at this college from sunup to sundown, taking as many classes as I could. And it was wonderful. Um, I tailored my entire college education to supporting this family business. And my dad was advising me uh, along the way the whole time. And uh, basically, here's the classes, here's the projects that would most help the family business. And uh, yeah, I had a wonderful time there. Um, uh, valedictorian uh, of my graduating class, uh, I gave the commencement speech. Uh, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in business with a double minor in managerial and tax accounting in two and a half years. Uh, very proud of my ability to get stuff done. If left alone as an entrepreneur, I will just get stuff done. And uh, with all those, all those credits, all that time, I got a bachelor's degree in two and a half years with a double minor. And I wanted to move on with my life. I wanted to start a family. I wanted to get involved with business and get going because I felt like my life was a little delayed. Um, the, the biggest takeaways I had from college was um, Ralph Pennell, uh, my, uh, the sort of like literature, creative writing, uh, sort of like uh, that, that sort of professor. Um, don't know why he was there. He's a brainiac. He gave himself of his students. One of the smartest dudes I've ever met. 
obviously I got impacted by a lot of professors there, but he was the one who really like, uh, I started the decompression process from all this and like learning who I was and, and what you were capable of during all these literature classes. So the business classes were great. It gave me a lot of energy. Uh, the accounting classes, I love that stuff. I love the data side of all this stuff. But what really gave me energy was creative writing, literature, poetry, playwriting, things like that. And it really let me kind of express and work through a lot of things of like discovering who you are and, and what your purpose is and all this stuff. Uh, I have a whole archive, a Google Drive of all this stuff. I reference it. A lot of the like plays I was writing and the poetry I was writing uh, was actually about you know, dealing with childhood and dealing with your place and this rebellious nature and, you know, this, this constant conflict with family and, and this angst and things like that. And it was actually really great. Uh, you're also dealing with a lot of decompression from, you know, what, what you do in the military, things like that. And it was a great time. So that combination of military physically pushing yourself, uh, exposing yourself to new things forcibly by law, you can't quit. And then going to college and sort of like expressing it, decompressing and taking time to think and feel and things like that was great. And I graduated in 2007. Um, in 2007, uh, I think I graduated in March of 2007. Um, April, May, June, three months later, I got married. Um, in between that time, I'm trying to piece this all together as I go back with the 15 year history. I'm trying to actually like get all my old tax returns, go through all my business archives and try to piece this together because I got a lot of feelings about it, but I want to overlay it with data. I'm not done with that yet. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, as far as I can tell, somewhere between March of graduating and um, June, when I got married, I called for like a family meeting. Uh, and uh, there's the, the picture on the post where I was previewing this was sort of like my dad, my father uh, in front of my old house and my old truck. And I called for a family meeting to see like, OK, I, I'm a really good craftsperson now. I've been painting since I was 10. I've likely been doing this for 15 years already. I'm a great painter. I'm a very productive painter. I have a college education and I have a military background and I've went to two wars. Like it's time to get this thing rolling. Let's see what we can do with this family business now. And uh, mom was forced in and out of the family business, painting and doing book work and all this other stuff over the years. She would get a secretary job, then sort of like, I, I felt, and this is me overlaying feelings, but I felt like she was kind of dragged back in um, here and there uh, to help out with the painting. My mom is a wonderful master craftsperson. Uh, she taught me how to hang wallpaper. It's a beautiful thing. I still hang wallpaper to this day because of the knowledge that she uh, that she um, showed me. She's a very happy craftsperson as well, too. She was always, whether she liked it or not, boy, she let me know. She put on a happy face and she liked it. Uh, my father was very serious, very stern most of that time. Uh, but taught me a lot as well, too. Um, but somewhere in that three months between March and June, give or take, we called for this family meeting and we kind of like, you know, brother was there. My future wife was there. Mom, dad, everything. I'm like, what are we going to do here? Like we got brother who's going to start a family. Dad, you got a family. I'm going to have a family. Like it's kind of just us painting. Like what are we going to do with all this thing? And uh, I wish I had a recording of this. It's probably one of those pivotal moments in my life. But during this meeting in the living room of my house, I completely got blindsided. Um, over the course of, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, I, I soon to believe like based on where the conversation was going, I was like, wait a second, you had been advising me through college about helping this family business. And I was, this is the thing where I was going to actually figure out, can I buy in? Can I earn in? Will you put my name on the truck? What's our future look like? Like I got this college education. I got a lot of energy. What are we going to do with all this stuff? I got that entrepreneur's aches. Like, come on, we got to do this support three families. And my father basically told me there's no place for you here. 
And uh, it completely blindsided me and uh, I think everybody else in the family too, unless you had talked to mom and brother prior to that. But um, very emotional time. Me and my wife were completely beside ourselves. We had no idea um, that this was going to happen. Um, and it was probably the biggest surprise of my life. Ever since I was a little kid, I just assumed my father and I would work together. And he basically told me, there's no path to ownership here for you. I'll give you an hourly wage and you will paint. And that's it. And at that point, very emotional, very emotional. Uh, if I recall right, things got pretty elevated in my house. There might have been a little bit of yelling. And I think I asked my family to leave. I think I was so blindsided. I was like, I cannot believe what's happening here. I've devoted my entire life to this thing. And there's no path to me having a hand in any of this stuff. I mean, for the good of three families. And uh, boy, it was a tense time there. Um, There's a huge rift in the family. There's all this tension, all this angst. And uh, my father would not budge. Um, He was serious. I could tell that he was not going to soften on this. So um, in June, I got married. My father did not come to my wedding. Um, Don't know what to think about all that. Um, Pretty embarrassed. Um, That summer, I continued working for my father. I didn't know what to do. I, I, had, I had planned my entire life on basically working with my father and my brother. And I imagine just being rocked from a little kid. You think your father and you are going to do this great thing together. And it just didn't happen. So honestly, I didn't know what to do. I worked in silence. I would show up to a job site. My dad would point to a side of the house. I would go to that side of the house. I'd put in my 10, 11 hours and I'd go home. We wouldn't talk. We wouldn't look at each other. We wouldn't do anything. I was just like in, I was just bewildered in shock. Uh, but I, I pretty soon realized what I needed to do. I needed to start my own business. There was no future. This is a very, let's say that financially it would have been fine. This is, um, it's not going to be productive. And so basically I started laying the groundwork for starting my own business. And it was like sad. It was, it was not like, oh, you know, vengeful sort of thing. Of course that those thoughts were in my mind too. But, um, yeah, it was, I started laying the ground to get my own business. You know, you file, you get your insurance, things like that. And small town, of course, I think the insurance guy called dad and said like, Hey, you know, your son's been down here and he's getting insurance. I think you should probably know. So father confronted me. We might've been, I mean, I, I literally think we're, you know, within weeks of this 15 years ago, uh, probably in early November, give or take, and uh, my plan was to start January 1st, 2008, because I, I, I got trained in accountancy and I love nice, clean books. And so father kind of got on to what I was doing, uh, asked me, oh, you're kind of starting your own business, aren't you? And I was like, yep. And since cat's out of the bag, we're just going to do it. And so I got blindsided by that. Not really. I mean, I was I was I started in 2007. Not because I wanted to, because I basically had to. I, I realized that there was no salvage in the relationship. And I was like, you know what? For the good of my family, we just need to do this. So I started, um, give or take, Black Friday <laughs> and uh, of 2007. I had no idea that there was a crazy housing crisis, uh, craziness in the stock market, uh, subprime mortgages, things like that was going on. Had no idea about all that stuff. But either way, um, as a young person, as a young person, um, who has not yet started his family. I, I, I had the thoughts that all young, that I should say that that's a gross overgeneralization. I wanted to crush my father. I felt really like this is the thoughts of a young man with not a lot of life experience where you're out for vengeance. You know, you're like, I'm going to show this town who's a better painter. And those are the thoughts of a young, unexperienced male. Um, 
I've had a lot of life experience since then. I've started my own family, um, and I have a hard time understanding a lot of the um, decisions my father made, but I respect him for it. It's his business. It's his life, and he can do with it what he wants. Um, I would have devoted all the time that I devote to Ask a Painter and to my business and my people, I would have done that for him if we would have had the right strategy, if we would have been able to do this together. Uh, that makes me sad. I can't work with my father, but it is his choice, and I respect him for that, and I respect that choice. And I don't hold any uh, ill will now. I, I love the thing that we've done. I just see a missed opportunity for a family to rally around together and do this. Interesting story about that is, you know, you're up for vengeance early on, so I'm crushing myself, martyring myself to make sure my clients are taken care of, working as many hours as I can. Uh, years later, um, <clears throat> maybe about the fourth or fifth time that my father and I tried to, like, mend our relationship, uh, he actually came over and was like, you know, you can, you can buy all, you can buy my business and I'll come work for you. And which is a big surprise for me. I think, I think I bought a stack of ladders and some equipment for 800 bucks, give or take. And dad came and worked for me, uh, for the same wage that he offered me. Interestingly enough, I just asked him what he wanted to make. I was really skeptical about this whole thing. Uh, he came and worked for me for a while. And, um, yeah, uh, not long after, I don't want to put it, it might have been weeks, might have been months, but not long after, like my employees were coming to me like, this is tough man, like he's leaving early, he's hanging around talking to the clients, and uh, I think he even got in a fight with a downspout, he was cussing at it, but like missing boards on the side of the house, and it pains me to even say this, because I don't want to cast my father in a bad light, but boy, it didn't work out, and it didn't work out in a horrible way. Uh, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. So... My father and I live in two historic homes, six blocks away on the same street. And uh, I remember very vividly walking over to my father's house and firing him. And when I started my own business this weekend, you know, 15 years ago, I had vengeance on my mind. Like, I'm going to crush this guy, you know, and uh, I'm going to crush him so bad he's going to have to move out of town. Uh, very ignorant way of thinking, very, um, very young person -y sort of way of thinking. And uh, so when I did fire my father, <clears throat> I mean, that would have been like a, you know, that would have been a dream scenario, <laughs> like firing your own father after what he did to you. But in the end, it was like that walk back to my house. was pretty sad. It was one of the saddest days of my life. So interesting, uh, interesting life experiences. Um, I felt bad for a missed opportunity. Um, I felt bad for our families because we weren't going to be able to work together. But we moved on and uh, we, we kept going with business and uh, it was a very, very interesting bunch of years. We sort of get into the um, discovery years of my business where really uh, this business now is celebrating its 15th anniversary. For the first 10 years, I just tried everything. I martyred myself for the craft. Um, I laid a base of coding science knowledge that is pretty unrivaled. Uh, just out of basic curiosity, um, I did so many experiments. I tried everything on every substrate with every tool, every method you can imagine. So even to this point now, when somebody says, well, what if we try this? It's like, I can tell you 10 ways that I did that will either make it work or not work. And here's the way you can set yourself up for a success or a failure. Or here's the machinations of it. Here's the things you're going to experience. I have tried everything. And, it, and, and, and not just like specific products, like things like water-based primers on these 10 substrates. What if you spray? What if you brush? What if you do it in the sun? What if you do it in the shade? What if it's summer? What if it's winter? Just natural curiosity brought me to just doing all this weirdness of coding science. So during those 10 years, um, I would consider them fairly unintentional years, although we worked very hard. Um, but I laid the base of coding science 
that still to this day serves my company, creating standard operating procedures, um, all this other stuff. There's nothing that a painter in the United States or a painter in my company can experience that I have not experienced in many ways. There's nothing that they can surprise me with. Um, if they if they feel they, they are experiencing something that I've never experienced, it's likely that I need more information. And we soon to find out, oh no, we've seen that before. And it's great. I love that base of knowledge. There's nothing we can't do. There's nothing that we haven't experienced. There's nothing, there's no coding thing we can't solve. But that coding science knowledge will only take you so far because your clients only care about it so much. Honestly, they want a good experience. They want a great paint job. They don't want, they want you to promise what you deliver. And at some point, the molecular science of oil primer doesn't benefit them and there's no value to them. And uh, I used to think I could clean up with my knowledge of coding science. I would just lay waste to all other painting companies. But it turns out uh, most clients' eyes will roll in the back of their head because there's no value in that for them. So just kind of is what it is. Um, go back to my, I took a whole bunch of notes here. Um, so... Basically, I was working 100 hours a week. I had a half-ton pickup truck, a bunch of gear. Um, I'm still trying to trace back when I hired my first employees. It couldn't have been that far after. I always think of it as like 10 years of working alone and then five years of growing what I've grown now. But really, I think I took on employees uh, soon after. And I'm actually going through all my tax returns and uh, all my old records. And I'm going to piece it all back together. It's very, very interesting to me to see like the, the journey of this. I have a lot of feelings and I need to overlay some data to it. But basically, I was uh, I was probably making you know 18, 21 bucks an hour, but I worked 100 hours a week and it was great. I, I supported my family in a pretty great way. My wife is an elementary school teacher. The second we had some kids, she stayed home. This, this freedom machine allowed us to parent our own children at home the way we wanted to, things like that. Uh, it, was in, it was a great thing. Um, I think I bought my first pressure wash. I grew up in a painting business with no sprayers, no pressure washers. And I think I, I just drove by the house that I did my first sprayed cabinet job a while ago. And I, I should dig out these pictures for you guys, but it was, I bought a sprayer. My first sprayer was a Titan 440. I think we still have it in the company. And I used water-based Impervo, water-based satin Impervo on that job. Uh, oil primer, uh, as you do, and water-based satin Impervo. And I taught myself how to spray in a, in a shed, uh, give or take, just like we all do. So it was a, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time experiencing all that stuff. Um, but basically for 10 years I dabbled. And, uh, if I'm being honest, um, I, I believe I was running a paint business the same way that my father ran it, which was, I was that grumpy old dude screaming at young people, do it better, do it faster. And I couldn't figure out why people couldn't do it as fast as good. And I did. And that is a horrible way to lead. That's a horrible way to just be a human. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I just realized like, come on, I'm not special. I can paint this house in this time. Why can't you guys do it too? Realizing I haven't trained them. I haven't given the necessary things. There was nothing written down in the company. It was just me pushing just the way that my father pushed me early on. So it was a really, really interesting, uh, it was a really interesting experience. And I probably have burned down, uh, many versions of this company with a lot of good people while I was learning how to be a leader. I think that's the natural journey of every sort of leader to experience these sort of things like this. Um, but it, it, I started laying the base for like, hey, uh, I've never talked to any other painters. I thought painters were the enemy. And so I never really reached out to any other painters and I suffered for it because all these things like, hey, how do you hire somebody? It's like, I'm going to have to create my own way. I'm going to be the first person to ever do it. Ignorantly, like you could have just reached out to other painters who employ people and they would have told you exactly how to do it. And they would have been great friends in the industry. And I probably would have compressed 15 years down to about three years, honestly, if I was getting serious about this sort of thing. But 
growing from the sort of regressive um, <clears throat> trades upbringing that I had, I kind of had to go through the self-imposed reformation about trying to figure out like what is a good leader, what is a good husband, what is all this other stuff, and uh, still on that journey, obviously, but like trying to learn what all that stuff is so I could be a better person and. This culminates about six years ago, kind of like the origin story of this company. There's the first 10 years of like the way it's always been done. I did what every other painter did. I just got out there and worked my ass off, made a lot of money and fine, whatever. Uh, bought me a farm, which is great. Um, but we had what I call the exodus, which is I had three awesome young people working for me. Two were brothers. Uh, one was one of their friends. Uh, still talk to these guys today. I love these guys. Uh, um, two of them on a Friday, well, on a Friday night, all my employees left me, all three of them. And we were just, we were killers, man. We would, we would always surprise ourselves how fast and how good we would get stuff done. And, um, on a Friday night, they all left. Uh, they didn't know each person was leaving, but, uh, two of them went to go do religious mission work, uh, I believe. And the other one went to go to pilots training. And so one of the greatest life lessons ever, which is I'm pissed. This is horrible. We got this great workforce. We're making lots of money. And guess what? It all gets erased. And I had nothing. I couldn't control it. I had, I had no say in it. And so crazy ups and downs with feelings. And I, my family's way of life changed and everything else. And like my life changed. And uh, these guys didn't know it. Uh, they were surprised. Uh, so we all had a meeting on my deck. And we decided, well, let's, let's finish out the summer together. We made a plan. They were awesome to help me out finish out a bunch of uh, summer work. And then from then on, I basically went on a, a hellbend spree to create a professional business. That was the advent, sort of the origin story or the um, point of inflection that I needed, uh, the impetus to really do something. And from then on, it's been a six-year journey of me trying to be a professional and grow a professional business. And how it basically goes, and I've, I've been compiling those six years. Those six years are very important to me. So for people who have seen my master's classes, you've gotten the story of this sort of thing. But basically, through then... Um, my first year, I hired two people at a time, trained them, and as soon as they were autonomous, I would hire two more. And I basically went from zero to 10 people in my first year. The next year, uh, I decided to do an experiment, an extreme experiment, as we're known for. And I hired uh, another 12 people in the summer, and I ran 22 people by myself for a summer. And what that experiment taught me is you need help. You can't do this. This is where your experiment breaks. Um, all the work was fine. We did well, but I just didn't have enough time for my clients. I really wanted a world-class experience for my clients. And I was, I was just spread too thin between 11 job sites every day, give or take. So uh, that taught me that I needed to hire some people. My first overhead hire uh, was Holly uh, as a production manager, still with me now, uh, world-class. Uh, she is known in the industry as like an exemplar of what a project manager or production manager is. Uh, amazing human being and really has allowed me the freedom to do these crazy experiments and learn to be a leader and grow this business. And we're finally realizing the fruits of this after many years of uh, uh, the consistency, um, the stability, the bonuses, the pay, the everything is there, the benefits and all that. And we've been working really hard on this for a lot of years. Um, shortly after, in the next bunch of years, then you realize the next thing is, you know, I'm doing all these estimates, uh, give or take, uh, and we're growing a business. And uh, so I needed to hire an estimator. So we hired estimator Andy, which everybody know and loves. Awesome estimator, world-class uh, guy and estimator. Uh, and then as we grow, um, we pass the million dollar mark, we pass the million and a half, we pass the two million. Uh, and now we realize that um, the next little plateau, the next little stage is where we're kind of at right now, which is two estimators, two project managers, an office 
coordinator, uh, Lindsay, world-class coordinator, professional coordinator. Um, we got our whole uh, pile of apprentices and craftspeople. We got subcontractors, uh, things like that. We have some drywall and carpentry capabilities as needed. Very minor. We don't really advertise it. Um, but right now, we're probably just under that $3 million of revenue mark, which is kind of like this stabilized professional like baby company, give or take. And we're going to stay here and we're going to maximize. We're going to see how great the client ex- uh, uh, the client experience could be, how great the apprentice and craftsperson experience can be, how great the leadership team experience can be. And we've growing a business is hard. There's a lot of trauma involved with that. And a lot of people have given me a lot of bandwidth and freedom to learn how to be a leader of something like this. Because again, most of our industry, comes into this being craftspeople and master craftspeople. And we have to teach ourselves how to be business leaders and business owners. And that's a hell of a lot harder than teaching yourself how to paint. So I believe I've done a fairly competent job of this long way to go. uh, But we have reached a nice professionalized point where um, I really like where we're at right now. Um, doesn't mean we're not going to grow in the future, but we have been on this crazy hell bent. Like, especially in the time of the global pandemic, we grew 47% that year in a time where, you know, there were four shutdowns and things like that. So my team is this battle hardened group of people that just it's mission first. And it's so admiring to watch these people operate. Uh, we are, we have been battle hardened by growing a business and we battle hardened by global pandemic, by supply chain shortage, by every other thing this economy and world can throw at us. I couldn't be more proud of their performance. And, uh, this is a beautiful place where we're at right now. Um, I like this a lot. Now, when we think about the future, obviously the next, uh, the next leap for us, it's pretty easy to figure out how big of a leap it is. Uh, you don't just add one person from here on out. You kind of have to grow in, in leaps and steps. But whether we take it or when we take it is all up in the air. And uh, from now on, <clears throat> I've been uh, beginning the slow transfer of leadership uh, in the company to the leadership team. And uh, this thing that I'm creating has a side, a side purpose as well, too, which is this painting company is a beautiful thing. Um, but in order to maybe pay for my retirement, I might have to sell it. And I don't know if I'm interested in that or not. I love this, arguably more than anybody else you'll ever meet about this sort of thing. Um, I might want to just operate this or be the leader or be the culture creator or the visionary of this thing until I die. And so I may not want to sell it. So what I'm, what the general idea is, this is now a way to take care of clients in a major way, create world-class finishes train people, decent human beings, uh, inculcate them into the trades, show them what loving your job is. But also it's a machine to vet the most trustworthy people in my life to see who wants to do business with me. And what I've started is a holdings company, uh, owns a couple pieces of real estate. And I really like the real estate side of this because that is the tangible thing that I could sell or use to generate revenue while still owning this painting company in the future. I have no idea what the future holds. Um, it's very likely, and I've, I've heard this and I do believe it, that the entrepreneur mindset or the entrepreneur that would start a business and grow it like this is usually not the same person to run it in a professionalized capacity. They're usually two different mindsets, um, two different ways of thinking, and one person functions really well in one and bad in the other. I'm trying to do something pretty difficult, which is I'm trying to professionalize myself. I'm trying to be that professional leader, that CEO, that president, that general manager that this company needs. And there's a lot of friction in that just with my personality, but I'm trying to teach myself to be a professional. Doing a competent job could do way better. Uh, 
but I'm really trying to vet out the next <clears throat> generation of leaders. I'm also trying to vet out the next generation of people who might want to develop some real estate with me. Uh, maybe do some uh, separate LLCs, maybe uh, offer something outside of a pretty rip and comp plan and, and bonuses and benefits and things like that in the company. And this company is a great way to see through this battle hardness who's there with me and who shares my core values and, and who I can trust. And uh, that's what I'm really looking forward to in the future. we got an awesome group of people. I would like to do uh, some really interesting business things later on. Um, but this is the core of what we do. This is my main function. All this other stuff is ancillary, and uh, I will devote uh, the majority of my time to this uh, for the rest of the time. Uh, I get so much energy from doing this sort of thing. Um, I wake up every day, and you always think that at some point you're going to be jaded, the stress is going to be too high, you're going to get bored, things like that. None of that has happened yet. And it's been 15 years and six years of <coughs> pretty aggressive growth while trying to maintain the standards of what I would consider the craft. Uh, finishes, um, the golden rule, things like that. And uh, yeah, this community has supported us in a major way. Our people have supported us in a major way. And uh, yeah, I would like to offer opportunities to those around me, family, friends, anything else. And this freedom machine is kind of just getting started. So um, boy, this is a long one, folks. Uh, it's just going to be under two hours. Uh, I will not belabor it past that. Uh, put this on in the background, put it on in a car. Uh, if you guys have questions, comments afterwards, I'll certainly get on there and, uh, and respond to you. But this is sort of more of like almost for me, which is it's important to get this down somewhere so that people can reference it later on. Uh, I will be overlaying some data with this over the next year as I sort of recreate the first 15 years of my business. I, I really want to pass down an archive uh, to this company, my family and everything else. And uh, I think it's going to be really fun. I think I'm going to learn a lot. And obviously, I will share things along the way like in my storage over here, I have a box with the first shirt that I got embroidered and wore and grew this business on. Like that's an important thing to me. Uh, I have my first hat, give or take. Uh, I got a lot of that, uh, my first estimate, things like that. And uh, yeah, as I dig this stuff up and we go down memory lane, I'll share it with you. But it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for putting up with my musings. I do appreciate this. And uh, it is Sunday, so I'm going to relax and we're going to go do some family stuff. So I appreciate all of you for watching. I appreciate the support of this community, all my people, uh, both in and outside the company. And I appreciate the support of this industry. You guys are an amazing group of people. And I'm really glad <clears throat> to be here in this industry with you guys as we not only reform our own personal lives, uh, our families, but also this industry. Uh, a decade, we're going to look back at this time right now. And this will be a watershed moment for, I believe, all the trades and especially our industry of painting. It is going to be massively interesting and satisfying to say that we were all here together doing this. So happy Sunday, everybody. We will talk to you guys later. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.